I'd like you for a moment to imagine a scenario. Since the issue of gay marriage is a hot topic at the moment, we'll use that as an example. I'd like you to imagine that a church debate is going on. One speaker stands up and he says something like this. We are followers of Jesus. And Jesus' core message was a message of love. Therefore, love should determine our position on the issue of gay marriage. Whatever the Bible might say about the rights or wrongs of the issue, the church ought to show love and acceptance to all. And the way to do that is by supporting those in the gay community who want to be married. The first speaker sits down. Another speaker jumps up. And the second speaker says something like this. We are followers of Jesus. We know that Jesus accepted the authority of the Bible. The Bible reveals God's will. It reveals the truth. And we must not compromise on that truth to any degree. And this second speaker then launches into a tirade about the despicable evils of homosexuality. And by the terms that he uses and the tone that he uses, it's clear he believes homosexuals belong in the hottest part of hell. And as far as he's concerned, it's a shame they're not all there already. Then the second speaker sits down. Who has got it right? Which speaker is honoring God the Father Almighty? Surely the answer is neither of them are honoring God. The first speaker is happy to disregard God's truth for the sake of showing love or what he believes is showing love. The second speaker is determined to stand for God's truth. But he seems to be full of hatred for men and women made by God in the image of God. Surely neither of our speakers were honoring the God that they claim to serve. I think our passage this morning shows us a better way than either of the approaches we've just thought about. We're going to turn back to the book of Acts. And our passage this morning is about building the church on truth and love. We're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, which is Acts chapter 15. And if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 1110. 1110. Acts chapter 15. This chapter falls almost exactly in the middle of the book. And commentators agree that it's the most crucial chapter in the book. It's a crossroads chapter. Chapter 14 ended with Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch after a time of great blessing on their travels. And now chapter 15 opens with conflict in Antioch. I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 35. 
Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of man may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul. 
men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is God's word. Our passage opens with a conflict that spreads from Antioch all the way to Jerusalem. And the source of the conflict is a question of truth. Specifically, the question is this. Are we saved by God's grace alone or by God's grace plus our own work? We've often noticed that the first Christians were Jews by birth. But back in chapters 10 and 11, a major development took place in the church. You may remember that God gave Peter a vision of a sheet filled with all kinds of animals. And the background to that vision was the Old Testament law. The law divided animals into clean and unclean. God presented Peter with that vision, and then he said to Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Peter responded by saying, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But then God said to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God went on to teach Peter that just as he can erase the distinction between clean and unclean food, so he can erase the distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Jews regarded Gentiles as unclean and unworthy people. But God showed Peter that the church of Jesus Christ is for all people. It's for men and women from every nation. You probably remember the story. Peter ended up in the home of a Gentile centurion called Cornelius. Cornelius called his friends and family. They listened to Peter and they believed in Jesus. God confirmed his acceptance of them by pouring out his Holy Spirit on them. They were baptized. And that whole incident ended with the church in Jerusalem hearing the news and praising God. They said, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. It seemed that a big barrier had been broken down, and it had. But then we have to ask, what's going on here? In chapter 15, what's this dispute really about? Hasn't God already made his will clear on the question of Jews and Gentiles? What is there to argue about? 
Well, no one in Acts 15 is saying Gentiles don't belong in the church. God has made it clear they do belong. The question here is, on what basis do they belong in the church? Are they saved from their sin and welcomed into God's family on the basis of faith in Jesus? Or do they have to do something else on top of having faith in Jesus? Do they have to become Jews in order to really become Christians? That's the question. And it leads to serious conflict. Verse 1 tells us some men arrive in the church in Antioch and start teaching. What they're teaching is, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Then verse 2 tells us this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. In other contexts, the word translated here as sharp dispute is translated as riot. So let's be very clear. These men are getting seriously worked up about this question. I've read about the early days of the American government when physical fights broke, up, broke out in the chambers. In fact, I can remember times growing up in Northern Ireland when fights broke out in local council meetings. I remember one councillor pulling another over a table by his tie. I suppose that's a good reason not to wear a tie. Now, I don't know how close it got to that here, but it is clear that neither side sees this as a minor issue. They both recognize it as a crucial issue. And in the midst of all the heat, the church has the clarity to see that this is not just a local issue. This is not something each local fellowship can decide for itself. This is a whole church issue. It's clear that the result of this conflict will decide the future of the church. So verse 2 tells us, The church in Antioch appoint Paul and Barnabas and some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, it's not clear if the other believers were those who disagreed with Paul and Barnabas. But in any case, when they eventually get to Jerusalem, a big meeting is called, and verse 5 says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. These speakers are very strict Jews, Pharisees, who have become Christians. They have acknowledged that Jesus is God's Messiah. And they may be the same teachers mentioned in verse 1. Or they may be others who share the same view. In any case, they are making the same point as verse 1. Yes, you have to put your faith in Jesus if you want to be accepted by God. But you also have to contribute something. You have to be circumcised and keep the Jewish law. Their argument is salvation is not by God's grace alone, received through faith in Christ alone. It's actually by God's grace plus our own work. Well, this meeting of the mainly Jewish believers in Jerusalem 
has to decide if these teachers have got it right. But what we're going to see is that although the church begins by answering the truth question, and that's where we always have to start, although the church starts there, it doesn't stop at answering the truth question. It also deals with the issue of love. The rest of our passage is about the resolution to the conflict, getting both truth and love right. In verse 7, Peter speaks up. He says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. These verses show us something the Bible is very clear on. The truth really, really matters. Getting the truth right really, really matters. And that is contrary to the usual message in our society. At least in terms of morals and religion, the prevailing message is we can all make it up as we go along. If you have a desire to do something, then go ahead and do it, so long as you don't harm anyone else. And if you would like something to be true, then go ahead and believe it. If it comforts you to think that your atheist relative went to a better place when they died, then hold on to that belief. At least when it comes to matters of morals, and salvation and eternity, believing that something feels good or believing something that feels good seems to be more popular than trying to get at the truth today. But the church, at least, must be deeply concerned to get the truth right. And the message of these verses is, get the truth right by submitting to what God has done and said. The approach these believers take is not to decide which belief they are most comfortable with. In fact, of the two options that are on the table, the conclusion the church comes to is the least comfortable one for them. But their approach is to examine what God has revealed about this question and then submit themselves to what God has revealed. As I just said, the conclusion they come to is the one they would not have come to by themselves. The man who has the final word in this discussion is James. And we know that James was perhaps the most conservative Jew among all the conservative Jews in the early church. The conclusion that Gentile converts don't have to be circumcised and keep the law would have gone against all of his personal inclinations. 
it would have been a highly uncomfortable conclusion for James. But it's the conclusion he came to. Because he put more value on the truth than he did on his own inclinations. In the verses that we just read, Peter reminds the church of what God has done. He says in verse 7, God made a choice. In other words, if you want to argue with what I'm going to tell you, argue with God. He chose to do it this way. Then Peter reminds the church what happened in chapters 10 and 11 with Cornelius. Cornelius and his friends heard the good news about Jesus from Peter's lips. They believed it, and God accepted them. How do we know? How can we be sure he accepted them? Because he gave his Holy Spirit to them. Gentiles, just as he did to us, Jews. Peter says they did not achieve purity in God's eyes by the good things that they did. No, in verse 9 he says, God purified their hearts by faith. And Peter has already explained that he means faith in what Jesus has done. His death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. When a man or woman, Jew or Gentile, trust that Jesus' death paid for their sins, then that trust, or we could call it faith, is the channel for God's forgiving grace to flow into their lives. Good works or law-keeping play no part in the process. Now, it is true that the person who has received God's grace and been changed by God's grace will do good works. But those good works don't contribute so much as a penny's worth to earning their salvation. And so Peter says in verse 10, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? In other words, God made a choice to do things this way. If you try to say salvation comes another way, you are testing God. The yoke he's talking about is the burden of trying to earn salvation by keeping the law. Peter says none of our ancestors were able to earn salvation that way. We can't earn it that way because it's not the way God has provided for salvation. So why would you go against God and try to make it the way of salvation? No, he says in verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Well, after Peter is finished, Barnabas and Paul tell more about what God has done among the Gentiles. And then James stands up. As I've mentioned, he was perhaps the most conservative Jew in the church at this time. But over and above his Jewishness, James is concerned to figure out and submit himself to God's truth. And he turns the discussion from what God has done to what God has said. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 13. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's Simon Peter, 
has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. The New Testament often referred to Israel as God's people. But now James acknowledges that God is also taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. And James realizes God had promised to do this all along. His quote here is from the prophet Amos, where God promises to rebuild David's fallen tent. We might read that and think, what's David's tent got to do with anything? Actually, this is a way of talking about the royal dynasty of King David. God had promised that an everlasting king would come from David's line. But all that seemed to have been ruined. Because not long after David's death, his kingdom was divided and the Israelites were taken away into exile. David's tent had fallen. But through Amos and other prophets, God had promised to rebuild it. And he promised that when he did, the king who would come would include Gentiles in his kingdom. The point is, James recognizes that the king from David's line is Jesus. And he recognizes that the good news about Jesus is bringing Gentiles into his kingdom. God had said he was going to do this, and he is doing it. And he is accepting those people without circumcision or law-keeping. That's the truth. And James is not going to oppose the truth because of his own preferences. The circumcision and law-keeping party have lost the battle. Now, their teaching didn't die away. It has always existed in one form or another as a dangerous perversion of Christianity. But the truth that salvation is by God's grace alone, received through faith in Christ alone, that truth has won the day here in Jerusalem. And it has always remained the foundational truth of the genuine church. It is important for us to get the truth about salvation right. And it's equally important for us to get hold of the bigger principle here. If you and I call Jesus our Savior and Lord, if we are prepared to stand in this building and call him our King, then we must give priority to God's truth in all of its aspects. Not just on the question of salvation, but also on questions about lifestyle or whatever question is facing us. What God has done and said must be our ultimate authority. God's will must carry more weight than our will or the will of our friends or the will of our society. 
And God's will is revealed to us in the Bible. The Bible was written by men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Is it hard to live in submission to God's will? Of course it is. It means you can't do everything you want to do. It means you can't go through life listening to your heart and following all the desires of your heart. Submitting to God's will may lose you friends. It may result in you being called a bigot or an extremist or a remnant from the dark ages. In certain parts of the world, it may get you killed. But it's always been that way. God's truth is not designed to make us comfortable, at least not in the short term. It is designed to save us from destruction and lead us into God's presence. From day one, the church has been built on God's truth. And if the church is going to last, it will only last by keeping God's truth as its source of authority. If James and the other Jewish Christians had followed their own inclinations here, there would be no church today. Christianity would have become just another branch of Judaism, and it would slowly have been swallowed up by Judaism. It's at this point, though, that our passage seems to get a little confusing. Look at verse 19. This is how James finishes his speech. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. We might wonder how this fits with what we've seen so far. There are four items on James's list. Four things Gentiles are to abstain from. And of the four... Sexual immorality is immediately understandable. But surely the rest sound like Gentiles are being asked to take on Jewish customs. And isn't that exactly what verses 1 to 18 have been saying they don't need to do? Well, here's what's going on. So far, this church council has been concerned to get the truth right. Now the focus shifts to getting love right. The message is, get love right by showing sensitivity to one another. As things stand, most Christians still come from a Jewish background at this point. And the major venues for sharing the good news are still the Jewish synagogues at this point. That's still the first place Paul and the other missionaries go to when they arrive in a new city. If we bear that in mind, and if we realize there were many things about the Gentile way of life 
that were highly offensive to Jews, maybe we can begin to see what James is getting at. If new Gentile believers show no sensitivity to Jewish beliefs and customs, then we have a recipe for misunderstanding and broken relationships in the church. We have a recipe for many non-Christian Jews rejecting the gospel before they've even heard it. Why? Because they'll assume Christianity is all about flouting and denying the things that Jews hold dear. I think that's the double point behind verse 21. The verse says, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Moses is a way of referring to the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Law of Moses. James seems to be saying in his letter, or suggesting that the letter would say, look, your Jewish brothers and sisters grew up saturated with the Law of Moses. And so did all those non-Christian Jews who we want to become Christians. Out of love for them, we ask you to show sensitivity to their background. What we have here at the end of James' speech is a call for sensitivity on all sides. First, for Jewish Christians to be sensitive to Gentiles. That's in verse 19. We should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not try and force them into a Jewish way of life. But equally, James wants the Gentile Christians to be sensitive to Jews by avoiding certain behaviors that are going to be horribly offensive to Jews. That's what the list in verse 20 is about. And the simplest way to understand this list is to realize that for Gentiles, a lot of community life centered around pagan temples. They were not only places of worship, they were also places for parties and celebrations. And because meat was so expensive, poor Gentiles would only eat meat whenever they attended a feast at the temple. But animals killed at the temple would likely have been killed by strangling, which meant the blood wouldn't have been drained from the meat before it was cooked. And Jews were brought up to believe that eating blood was offensive to God. Then there was the fact that before meat was served at the temple, it was offered ceremonially to an idol first. And yes, that didn't mean you were worshipping an idol by eating the food. But it would have set off major alarm bells in the consciences of most Jews. And then, as if all of that wasn't bad enough, pagan temples were stocked with temple prostitutes. So, even if Gentile Christians avoided the prostitutes, even if they played no part in idol worship, even if they just went there and enjoyed a Sunday roast with their family, their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters we're going to have a hard time getting their reactions right. Maybe some of the Jewish Christians would start feeling superior 
Maybe some would feel unbearably worried that their Gentile brothers and sisters were offending God in some way. And maybe some of the Jewish Christians would get sucked into the whole temple scene and actually get involved in idolatry. There was huge potential for a mess, for ill-feeling and misunderstanding, and ultimately for division in the church. We saw that in our reading from Romans earlier, and it crops up in several other places in the New Testament. And so James wants to tell the Gentile believers, cut your Jewish brothers and sisters some slack. We're asking them not to force the Jewish law on you. And we ask you to show sensitivity to their tender consciences by avoiding your Sunday roast at the pagan temple. As well as the other stuff at the temple that you certainly shouldn't be doing. James is saying, we agree that you are free from the Jewish law. But surely it's a small thing to give up some of your rights out of love for others. Get love right by showing sensitivity to one another. The rest of our passage tells us about those who were chosen to carry the letter to the Gentile believers. Then it gives us the content of the letter which follows what James has suggested. And finally, we're told about the way the letter is received. Verse 31 says, The believers in Antioch were glad for its encouraging message. A potentially dangerous conflict has been overcome. It's been overcome by a determination to get both truth and love right. We started off thinking about the issue of gay marriage. And I think the lessons of our passage can be applied to this issue. The church is faced with two major challenges with regard to this. The first challenge is to get the truth right. To have the courage to trust God's wisdom and hold to what he has said in his word. And he has spoken very clearly in his word. We have no right to change our message to fit with the fashionable point of view. It's not our message to change. It's God's. That's the first challenge, getting the truth right. And the second challenge is to get love right. We must stand for the truth in such a way that sinners of every kind know we have a message of hope for them. The message that in Christ, there's a welcome for them. In Christ, there's acceptance with God and acceptance in the church. And there's freedom from the slavery and the disappointment of their sin. God forgive us if we stand for the truth in such a way that we lose a hearing for the truth. We do that when we speak with anger and hatred and when we refuse to show sensitivity. As Christians, we must get the truth right. 
But we do not have the right to stand for the truth any way we like. We are not permitted to unload the truth like a bazooka in someone's face with no concern for them as a person. Now, I know that the truth will often be rejected no matter how sensitively we put it. But that does not change our responsibility. As we get the truth right, we have an equal responsibility to get love right. The church is built on truth and love. And we hurt the church and we dishonor our God when we neglect either of those things. Let's respond to God's word. And we're going to do that by singing, first of all, Soften my heart, Lord. And then, O church, arise.